Well, after demonstrating that the disciples of Jesus were despairing in the section of text that I just read, Luke 8, 22-25, Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his book, Spiritual Depression, it is very wrong for a Christian to be in such a condition. I do not care what the circumstances may be, the Christian should never be agitated. The Christian should never be beside himself like this. The Christian should never be at his wit's end. The Christian should never be in a condition in which he has lost control of himself. A Christian should never, like the worldly person, be depressed, agitated, alarmed, frantic, not knowing what to do. The Christian is never meant to be carried away by his feelings, whatever they are. Never. Is Lloyd-Jones correct in this assessment? I would say basically yes, but it needs a little nuance. Remember, though, that he said should never and not are never. And that's a big difference. It is the reality that we will be from time to time carried away by our feelings and overwhelmed with depression, agitation, alarm, etc. Certainly, um, we will be uh, tempted to feel this way and we'll, we'll feel the inclination to uh, feel this way. And sometimes we will, we will give in and we will be utterly overwhelmed. In fact, a number of times over the last couple of years, I myself have experienced feelings of despair. I think that we all will, we all have or will experience feelings of despair from time to time. Unless you've been blessed with an extremely cheerful personality, a joyful personality in which nothing really seems to phase you, which some people do seem to be blessed for the large part with, and uh, they get feeling uh, down for a couple of hours here and there, and they're right back up. I hope to share with you again tonight, I say again because I've preached this sermon before, some of my meditations on this section of Scripture and Lloyd-Jones' exposition of it. Uh, they've been helpful to me along the way, and I hope that they'll be helpful to you. Also, either in your current despair, or to vaccinate you against future despair. This is a vaccination that you must take. <laughs> let's, begin with, let's begin with a close examination of the text. I want you... Um, to see that they really were in danger. Look at verse 23. As they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water, and what does it say? And were in danger. So they actually, really, and truly were in danger. Likewise, we may actually, really, and truly be in danger. We may actually really and truly be in a predicament. They say, we are perishing. And they say, do you not, do you not care in a parallel passage in Mark? We are perishing. This is not a polite and 
genteel. Excuse me, Lord. Sorry to, sorry to disturb your sleep. But we are in deep trouble out here. And we know that we can't handle this. But we know that you are the Lord. Please, help us. This is more like, we're all going to die. Oh, Lord, we're all going to die. Do you not care that we are perishing? How could you be sleeping at a time like this? Wake up. You need to wake up right now. Jesus responds to them, where is your faith? What is the sense of this question? Is he getting at... What is he getting at with this question? I think that the answer is... Where is the strength of your faith? Why is there such a small amount, such a, such a low degree of faith? And this is because when we compare with the parallel passage in Mark 4, verse 40, he says, have you still no faith? So it seems to be that the emphasis here is on sort of the quantity, if we can put it that way, of their faith or the depth of their faith. Um, as opposed to the object of their faith. Like, where is your faith? Like, is it in yourselves? Is it in me? Is it in your own ability to bail water out of the boat? Is it in your own ability to navigate the boat through this storm? Or is it in me? I don't think that's so much what Jesus has in view, as much as why is your faith so weak? So the sense of it is something like this. It's as if Jesus says to them, Oh, you who exercise so little faith. You exercise so little faith. Where is your faith? Why are you not exercising your faith at this time? So that's what's happening in the text here. Obviously then Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves and they stop and the disciples are amazed by it. But that's not really so much our focus tonight. We're focusing in on the disciples' distress and the way that Jesus addresses that. We will consider this evening how this text helps us. But before we get to that, let's lay down a principle. Whatever is the solution to cases of rational despair must be helpful also in cases of irrational despair. So sometimes you actually are in danger and you actually are perishing. If there's a solution, even for situations like that, then what about when you're actually not in danger and you're actually not perishing, but you just feel like you are? Isn't that in some sense a lesser case? And wouldn't it stand to reason that even if you are in danger, here's a solution. So if you're not in danger, how much more of a solution is it for a situation like that? Sometimes we really are perishing, at least in an earthly sense. As we'll see in a few minutes, we're never really, really perishing, ultimately. But in this case, the boat really was being swamped by the waves. Even the inspired narrator tells us they were filling with water and were in danger. Just like you can read 
biographies of Christian men and women of bygone times and read about the dangers that they encountered, sometimes even martyrdom. There are points in life where we actually are in danger, where circumstances actually really and truly are bleak, where there is real great difficulty, where it's not just people feeling down for no apparent reason, but there's actually legitimate cause for concern. There are two examples biblically that I would like to remind you of. One was Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now if you were ministering to Jesus, I know that's a funny one to wrap your head around, but suppose you were out for a walk in the Garden of Gethsemane and you saw this man sweating great drops of blood in obvious distress of spirit. You didn't know him and you said, Sir, you know, you, you really seem to be troubled. Yes, I, I really, I am troubled. I'm going through a great ordeal. It wouldn't make any sense to say, well, you're really imagining it. There is no ordeal. And what you need to do is think more positively. Because you're basically just thinking really negatively about your life. And if you would just think more positively and have a more optimistic outlook, you wouldn't be so distressed. Well, obviously that wouldn't be fitting because clearly there was an ordeal. Jesus had a cup to drink in God's providence. He had something difficult to go through and to do. And so there really was danger. He really was perishing. There really was rational grounds for distress. Also in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, which is a section of text that I preached on last July at the Caribbean Baptist Heritage Conference. Paul says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. So Paul was in a deadly peril. In that case, the Lord rescued him as the Lord rescued these disciples on the boat. But it doesn't mean that there was nothing all along to be rescued from. It's not like, okay, Paul, you know, we're glad that you're home on furlough from your missionary journeys to share your report. But it obviously wasn't a deadly peril if he survived. You're here, aren't you? I mean, you must be exaggerating. There really wasn't any actual deadly peril. We, we can understand that sometimes people are actually in great difficulty, great danger. There actually is threats. There actually is pressing, as Paul says, on every side. <coughs> there are situations in which, in an earthly sense, we really are in very grave danger. There really is trouble. And this applies not only to physical bodily harm, but this can also apply to emotional distress. Sometimes people are just truly pressed emotionally. And there actually is a good reason to be pressed emotionally. And it doesn't always have to do with, oh, I'm going to die. It could be how somebody treats us. It could be a situation. It could be whatever. There could actually be a reason why somebody is 
concerned and having a difficult time coping emotionally. This is what I'm going to call rational despair. There is a reason. In the modern day, Christians are really being persecuted, as Paul was many times on his missionary journeys. So many others have been. There's a man uh, connected with the Reformed Baptist Network who's a pastor in India. He's been, he's been beaten up. He's been run out of the city with people throwing stones at him. Um, just straight up persecution. It happens. It's still happening even today. Thank God that we live in an area of the world where we don't experience that. But some do. We can think of even the coronavirus going on around us. A church in Philadelphia just lost one of their elders. They had something like 54 cases, I think, in a church of about 200 people. And one of their elders died, uh, who had been a long-standing member. A lot of um, uh, churches in um, other parts of the world have experienced deaths even within the congregation. In India, one of, another pastor, not the same guy, but another pastor has just reported that they're just literally just, there's bodies in the ditches at the side of the road uh, in the area where he lives. I'm not super familiar with Indian geography, so I can't tell you exactly where or, or what, but they're literally just putting bodies in the ditches because they, they can't even bury them. There's no space. There's bodies floating in the river. Like three or four of his pastor friends have died. Like good good, faithful, gospel-preaching men have died. Uh, Christians are not exempt, apparently. We can think historically of the Holocaust, various wars of different sorts. There are circumstances which happen which don't just exempt Christians, but Christians and non-Christians alike suffer in terrible ways. On a smaller um, individual scale, things like car accidents, cancer, abuse of whatever sort, physical, sexual, difficulty comes to us. And sometimes it really challenges us and really presses us emotionally. Other times, we feel like we are perishing, but we're not. So sometimes there's a reason, sometimes there's a basis, sometimes there's a ground for the way that we feel, the struggles that we're having. Other times, there's, there's not really a good reason. There is such a thing as clinical depression. And clinical depression is not a sin. Your body is broken. I'm not a doctor or a biologist or um, anything of the sort. So I can't explain exactly how it works, exactly what happens. But it's not as if our, it's not as if our bodies were exempt from the curse, the brokenness that the world experiences because of sin. And sometimes something is just out of whack. And so... As I said last time, this is a helpful way for me to think about clinical depression. 
let's say that the average person's average feelings are at like level five out of 10 on a normal day. And if that person has a good day, it goes up to six or seven. And at like real high points in that person's life, they go up to like maybe eight or nine. Or if it's just absolute bliss, 10, right? And if they have a bad day, it's maybe at like four or three. And it's like, take something really catastrophic to bring someone down to like a two or a one. Clinical, with clinical depression, it's as if the average baseline drops two points or something like that, right? Or depending on severity, it's three points, four points. But you get the idea. So somebody with clinical depression might have a baseline of three instead of a baseline of five. So when they, have, when they have a really, really good day, it goes up to like where the average person is on an average day. And if they have a slightly bad day, they drop down to where the average person is on a catastrophic day. And if they have a catastrophe, well, all of a sudden they're running a deficit in terms of emotional stability and sense of well-being. It's not a perfect analogy, of course, but I think it helps it helps us empathize a little bit and understand that some people's baseline is just lower because of biology. And that there's, there's something there that's just biologically there. Now that in itself is not a sin. It's not a sin to just have lower feelings because of your biology. That being said, clinical depression is not a carte blanche excuse for all, all subsequent sin. So... Just like if, if somebody, let's say on a Saturday, you're, um, you or one of your loved ones or something is repairing a roof and you fall off and you land in a really awkward way with your arm first and you like just demolish the muscles, the tendons in your shoulder, break your arm in a number of different places. Well, obviously you're not gonna be at church the next morning, clearly. But let's say that you get the surgery, the treatment, everything that you need, but it's like a year later and you're like, well, my shoulder's still really sore, right? And I, you know, I'm, we're, but we're saying, but you haven't been to church in a year. And you're like, well, yeah, it's medical. You can, under, you can kind of understand what I'm saying. There's a point to which or at which Clinical depression is a legitimate medical issue that we have to extend compassion and understanding to people who struggle with it. But it's also not just a carte blanche excuse to default uh, indefinitely on the duties of the Christian life. And so just like we're, we, we need to find that sweet spot with a physical injury like a broken arm or a damaged shoulder or something like this, um, between extending compassion and also exhorting that person to go through that trial and to go through that difficulty in a way that honors the Lord. <clears throat> so we need to do with those who struggle with clinical depression. You've got to find a sweet spot there. Imagine how painful it would be in the example that I gave you to fall off a roof, land awkwardly on your arm, absolutely just demolish your shoulder. You'd probably have some broken ribs. You'd have, it would be a serious injury. And you're in the hospital that night, you're in extreme agony, extreme pain, and a brother or sister comes and visits you from the church, and they say, how are you doing? And you're like, well, not good. 
I'm really, I'm really struggling. And, you know, I'm just wondering, like, how could God let this happen to me? And, you know, I'm, I just, I feel just overwhelmed. You know, and I, as I think about my future, I'm just, just overwhelmed with it all. And that person's like, oh, come on, cheer up. You got to have the joy of the Lord. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. <laughs> say, okay. <laughs> well, in due time, you know, if that persists, maybe at some point you've got to come alongside with a conversation like that. But, but you realize there's basically no compassion, no empathy, no patience, no sense of like, well, I might be struggling the same way if I was in your shoes. And yet this is the way we often minister to people with depression. Somebody is struggling and we're like, well, what's wrong? Well, I don't know. I just, I just, I'm really struggling inwardly. I can't put words to it. What do you mean you can't put words to it? Just tell me what's wrong. Well, it's something, it's something inward that just feeling just really down, overwhelmed, discouraged, despairing. Why would you feel like that? After all, the Lord Jesus died for your sins and there's the hope of the resurrection. The scripture says, rejoice in the Lord. You see how ministering like that is not really the way to go. I'm getting ahead of myself here into the next section. <laughs> Let me backtrack a little bit. Clinical depression is not a sin, but it's not a carte blanche excuse for all subsequent sin. So let me state that another way. The feelings are not a sin, but how we respond to them may be. Now, again, we're still under this rubric of sometimes we feel like we're perishing, but we're not. Another reason this can happen is not because of clinical depression. It, it could be because of spiritual attack. The scripture tells us that Satan is like a roaring lion prowling around, seeking whom he may devour. And he does this in various ways. With some, he, he seeks to trip them up with sin into temptation. With others, he seeks to overwhelm them with despair. In either case, whether we're dealing with rational despair or irrational despair, let me give you an illustration. In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian is on his way from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And as I think all of us in this room know, this is an allegory for leaving the life of sin and the path that is to hell and going on this journey of life where we encounter various challenges where we make our way to heaven. And along the way, Christian meets up with a fellow named Hopeful. And they see a deviation from the path that looks like it might be a bit of a better way, a bit of an easier way. So they get off the path. Well, they end up getting caught by a fellow, a nasty fellow named Giant Despair. And he beats them every night. And he suggests to them that they just kill themselves to end their suffering. And so here are Christian and Hopeful locked up in Doubting Castle. 
being beaten by giant despair. Look, whether rational or irrational, whether there's a basis or whether, whether there's not really a compelling objective basis for our despair, sometimes Christians end up in that place. Sometimes we're being beaten by a giant despair. It happens while we're on our way from the city of the destruction to the celestial city. Now, to summarize this section, whatever is the solution to dealing with rational despair, surely it is the same solution in cases of irrational despair. And what is the solution? It is to exercise faith. We must exercise faith when we are battling depression and despair. We must exercise faith when we are battling depression and despair. Jesus rebukes the disciples in this passage for not exercising faith. Where is your faith? Why are you not exercising your faith? Again, this is the sense of it rather than in which object or which person is your faith? It's not that, because in, Mark, uh, in Mark's parallel account, the question is, have you still no faith? So the issue isn't in whom or what is your faith placed. The issue is the quantity of it, if we can put it that way. Why are you not exercising faith? This is what Jesus says to them. The implication is that when we are feeling despair, we ought to exercise faith. When we are feeling depression, anxiety, all of these sorts of things that lead us to be, as Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about in the beginning, agitated, depressed, discouraged, out of control, ruled by our feelings, etc., etc. When we are dealing with any of the sort of feelings along the spectrum that get us there, that get us to that place, we ought to exercise faith. Feelings are a gauge, not a guide. Let me explain that. But you would do well to memorize that little statement. It will help you at some point in your life. Feelings are a gauge, not a guide. When I first moved to Barbados, I could not get anywhere, and I am talking anywhere without a GPS. I couldn't even get from where my house is now to my parents-in-law in Atlantic Shores. I couldn't, I used to have to use the GPS back then to get from Market Hill where we used to live down to then. I couldn't, I would use the GPS when I had to go from uh, staying at my parents-in-law into town, even though I would go right along the coast road, right into town. I'm telling you, for about three months, I was just attached to my GPS. I had to use the GPS. The GPS was a guide to me, whereas... Kamara, don't look down. The, listen, the, the GPS was a guide to me. It told me what I should do. It told me where I should be going. Whereas the 
speedometer in the car doesn't tell you anything but what is happening. So the speedometer does not tell you how to get to town. The speedometer does not tell you in which direction to drive your car. The speedometer doesn't uh, tell you whether to make a left here, make a right here. The speedometer doesn't tell you what lane you need to be in. The speedometer doesn't tell you which direction you need to go at this roundabout. All it tells you is what is presently happening. You are going 48, you're going 71, whatever. It doesn't guide you. It only helps you know what is happening right now. Whereas the GPS guides you. It tells you in 200 meters, turn right. In 75 meters, turn right. Turn right and you go. And eventually you end up where you need to be because it guides you. Our feelings are more like a speedometer than a GPS. They tell you something's wrong. You don't necessarily know what that something is just because you're having bad feelings. In that sense, maybe it's the check engine light more so even than the speedometer. It just tells you something's wrong. Why am I, why am I feeling like this? Something's wrong. You don't, you don't necessarily know because you're feeling bad immediately from that why you're feeling bad or what's up. Sometimes you can put a finger on it. I feel bad because such and such and I know that that's what's wrong. Other times you're like, I don't know why I'm feeling this. I don't know what's wrong. But it tells you something's wrong. But it doesn't tell you, your feelings don't tell you what you should do about that. Your feelings are not a guide. Your feelings are just a gauge. God's word is a guide. God's word tells us what we should be doing. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119, verse 105. And here in this passage, we see the scripture indicating to us that when we are feeling depression, despair, anxiety, we ought to exercise faith. This is the clear implication. These guys were in danger and they wake up Jesus. We are perishing. Do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus says, essentially, you ought to be exercising faith. Why are you freaking out? You ought to be exercising faith. Well, faith in what? That we won't sink? What if we do? So what if you're feeling depressed because you just got a cancer diagnosis? Or what if you're feeling depressed because your spouse left you? What if you're feeling depressed for a very legitimate reason? Because things in this world are going very badly for you. And the ending doesn't look like it's going to be a happy ending in this life. What should you do? Just have faith that everything will turn out okay for you in this life? Is that what the scripture requires? Well, I'm sure that my spouse will come back. Well, I'm sure that I will be healed of this cancer. I have faith. But what if you die of cancer? What if your spouse doesn't come back? That can't be what our faith is. 
That kind of faith is just wishful thinking. What we need to have faith in is that we will ultimately be okay. In Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2, we read a very wonderful promise. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. See, this promise is that God will be with us. What did Jesus say at the end of Matthew 28? And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We have been united to Christ by faith, just such that He is ours, we belong to Him. And nothing can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. That it's not possible for us and Jesus to have a different fate. It's not possible for us and Jesus to have a different destiny. Because we have been united to Him by faith. Such that what is His is ours. What is ours is His. We are His brothers. We collectively are His bride. We will end up where Jesus is. Sharing in the abundance of all that Jesus possesses. When through the deep waters I call thee to go then, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with thee that troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. In down to old age all my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And then when gray hairs shall their temples adorn, like lambs they shall still in my bosom be born. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. You see, in this life, in this life, you might have to go through some deep waters. In this life, the rivers of sorrow might overflow you at times and in places, and you might cry yourself not to sleep, but to death. It's possible to end your life in tears and sorrow, you know. In this life, you might have deep distress and troubles. In this life, your pathway may lead you through fiery trials. In this life, the flame may hurt you. In this life, your foes may get the upper hand. You can't have faith that it won't be that way. Because that's not promised to you anywhere in the Scripture. 
But through it all, there is sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And there is a God who bears us like lambs in His bosom. And though all hell should endeavor to shake us, He'll never, no never, no never forsake us. And He will not desert us ultimately to our foes. His grace really will be our supply if we look to Him in faith. He really will sanctify our troubles and our distresses to us to consume our dross and to refine our gold. And even if you cry yourself to death, you wake up on the other side of the River Jordan to the face of Jesus. To an eternity without tears, without pain, without mourning. God will make sure that we are ultimately okay. Because our destiny cannot be different from Jesus. Jesus can't flourish while we perish because we're united to Him. The boat can't sink then. Ultimately. Ultimately. We can both go through a cross to a resurrection. Right? Or we can both, to use an analogy for that, we can both go in a sinking boat down to the bottom of the sea and then come up out of the sea to a resurrection. But we can't find ourselves crucified and not risen. We can't find our boat sunk and not recovered. It just cannot happen. Because Jesus went through the cross to the empty tomb. We must go through the cross to the empty tomb. So even if our boat sinks, we're not going to be at the bottom of the sea forever. Ultimately, we're going to be okay. Ultimately. And this is what we have to lay hold of by faith. If the disciples in the passage that we were looking at tonight had really trusted God's sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And the union that they had with Christ. They would have still been concerned, no doubt. But they probably would have woke Jesus up more in that way that I described at the beginning. Lord, we don't know what to do here. As the king of Israel prayed many centuries before. We don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. This is a hard providence. We're in the middle of a storm, but we trust that something must be happening because you're the Messiah. And we know that you can't drown and stay at the bottom of the sea. So there must be some plan here. Lord, help us. If they had just got that ultimate faith right, they probably would have been a lot more settled and a lot more composed. We need to trust that we will ultimately be okay because Christ is in the boat. 
Christ can't just end up forever at the bottom of the sea. Since we're united to Him, we're in the same boat as Him, we can't ultimately end up at the bottom of the sea either. Surely the boat will not sink with Christ in it and He perish too. Union with Christ gives us the assurance that even for us, all will be well in the end. As all will be well in the end for Christ, our brother, our bridegroom, our king, our shepherd. If everything's going to be all right with him, ultimately, everything's going to be all right with us too. This is what we need to lay hold of by faith. When we think and believe the truth, instead of just going with our feelings, we find that the weightiest factor affecting our destiny is not actually the waves or the storm, but Christ who is with us in the boat. That's the most ultimate reality. Even rational despair is therefore, for the Christian, also actually irrational in the final analysis, if you think about it. Why despair even if you're going to die? Even if you get a cancer diagnosis, even if your spouse leaves you, even if you're struggling with clinical depression and there seems to be no earthly hope of a normal life for you. Is it rational to totally despair if you have Christ? If Christ is in the boat with you? No. Certainly you have hard providences to go through and you're going to struggle. And it's going to be hard. To exercise faith is not easy. But all will be well in the end for you, brothers, sisters. All will be well ultimately in the end for you. And therefore, even rational despair is for the Christian also irrational, ultimately, in the final analysis. Yes, we may lose a battle, but we shall win the war. Yes, we may sink, but we will emerge from the depths. Yes, the flames may engulf us, but we will come out of the fiery furnace. Yes, they may crucify us, but the stone will be rolled away. Yes, we may literally die, but Christ will resurrect us. This is a great hope, and this is great rational grounds upon which to battle anxiety, depression, despair. We need to exercise faith in these sorts of things.